This is Fresh Ed. I'm Will Brem. My guest today, professor of education policy at the University of Illinois, Chris Lubienski, speaks about the rise of policy orchestration among a network of private and nonprofit actors and what this means for democratic decision making. His research shows how philanthropic foundations, such as the Gates and Walton Family Foundations, and think tanks, such as the Brookings Institute and Rand Corporation, have come to promote a common agenda that has helped propel vouchers and charters into the national spotlight. Professor Lubienski, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. Before we discuss your forthcoming journal article entitled Orchestrating Policy Ideas, Philanthropies, and Think Tanks in U.S. Education Policy, which will appear in the Australian Educational Researcher, uh, could you please explain how you became interested in the subject of educational privatization? Oh, yeah. Um, that's a great question. Um, I was doing my doctoral studies at a time then, um, that policymakers, I think, were first really accelerating the move towards uh, markets in education in the U.S., but also in other countries, uh, in, in uh, Sweden, New Zealand, the U.K., and uh, I've been quite interested in that topic in, in and of itself, how are schools um, uh, operating and responding in, in more marketized environments that have been created by those policies. Uh, but at the same time, I've been quite interested in what does this mean for policymaking itself? Uh, what are the, the drivers for that agenda in policymaking? And what are the implications for democracy? Um, so more recently, I've been working with some colleagues on a, a, a project funded by the William T. Grant Foundation, which is looking at how intermediary organizations are promoting those types of policies. And this is with uh, Janelle Scott at Berkeley and Liz DeBray at, at University of Georgia. And we've been looking at this in a number of, of U.S. cities um, and looking at the, the specific organizations that are, are promoting these types of uh, policies, what we call incentivist policies. And uh, you see a lot of the, the familiar names would, would appear. Um, uh, major philanthropies and think tanks would, would keep appearing um, as affiliates with a lot of these new types of organizations that are, are popping up at, at the local and national levels. So that's, that's basically, in a nutshell, how I've, I've um, uh, developed this interest. And uh, I, I would say that um, I'm, I'm also been working with some other colleagues and, and, and extending this to the, the global level as well. It's not just a U.S. phenomenon by, by any means. So we've been, we've been starting to track these, these issues across countries as well. Um, yeah, so I think that's the... The, the main issue is the, the, the heart of it is we wanted to examine how these these philanthropies and think tanks were facilitating idea transfers through these policy networks, both at the, the, the local and the national and international levels. Right. And in this particular article, which you write with uh, T. Jameson Brewer and Priora uh, Goel La Landa, um, you talk about how uh, lots of education policymaking in the U.S. has been, in a sense, outsourced to right. public and private actors of different sorts. Uh, and now this group of, of actors is, quote-unquote, orchestrating policy. And so perhaps as a way to begin the discussion about this article, perhaps you could describe the group um, Parent Revolution, which came up a few times in the article. 
Yeah, parent revolution is one of the, the type, one of the two, two cases that we we use to illustrate these these processes. Um, parent revolution is an organization that's um, founded by a former Clinton aide named Ben Austin, and it focuses on a, a, a policy called parent trigger, um, where uh, parents at a, um, a school have the ability to um, petition or vote to change the, the basic structures of the school. This could mean different things in terms of uh, 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 firing the staff or restructuring, firing the leadership. Um, and it's been taken up in different states with somewhat um, some variations on, on that basic set of, uh, of, of policy interventions. But one common factor across all of them is that the school could be restructured as a charter school. And uh, so Parent Revolution is an organization that does have some connections to the, the, um, the charter school management world. And so you'll get charter school chains that um, see this as a, uh, a device or an opportunity for them to, to um, in a sense, take over a school. Uh, so Parent Revolution itself has, has got funding from some of the philanthropies that I'm sure we'll discuss more here today. But... Uh, yeah, they, they have political connections and um, started in California, and since then they've they've expanded and, and promoted this this legislation at other in other states as well. And and in the article, you describe them as a quote unquote grass tops organization rather than a grassroots organization. Can you explain the difference, please? Right. Yeah, grassroots is obviously kind of an appealing image, and um, a lot of organizations like to present that kind of that that. Face um, where they're responding to um, demands from the community, for example. Um, so there is that that kind of incentive to to create that image. Grass tops is a um, a variation on that, where the, the the impetus is actually not coming from from the community, but from above. Um, and so the focus is more on, on on the top, and then they're trying to create the image of of roots underneath that. Um, and so Parent Revolution uh, exemplifies that to some extent because they do get a lot of funding from these philanthropies and they'll use that funding, for example, to hire um, private firms to go out and collect petitions or, or signatures from parents to try and pull that trigger in schools. Um, so they can say that they do have the support of the community, but uh, subsequent research has, has shown that uh, they're often, they, they approach parents and they don't particularly inform them about the issues and, uh, and the parents' uh, prerogatives in this respect. So what happens is a lot of the parents are signing something that they later have suggested they really weren't aware of, of the, the implications of what they were doing and often regretted the, um, the outcomes of those, those things. So, yeah, it, it, it suggests that what we have is uh, these, these organizations that are trying to create this appearance in order to, I wouldn't say manipulate, but they're definitely taking advantage of um, uh, or, or trying to capitalize on uh, uh, the community's uh, sensibilities on these issues, um, but the driver is really from above and not from below. And some of the the actors from above are think tanks. Um, and I found it amazing uh, that you cite a study that identified <clears throat> over 6,000 think tanks across the U.S. in different sectors. So in education policy, which are the main think tanks involved? 
Yeah, actually, the, the number you're giving, the 6,000, is global. Oh, global, okay. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, in the U.S., I think it was more like 1,800. So it's still a substantial chunk of the, the global think tank sector. It resides in the U.S., and a big chunk of that is in Washington, although not by any means completely. Um, so in, in the U.S., on a national level, uh, you'll, you'll see um, some, some major players, and they tend to be more on the kind of the conservative end of things and also um, in, for, in favor of corporate education reform. So groups like American um, Enterprise Institute, or AEI, the Heritage Foundation, um, Heartland, the Heartland Foundation, Cato Institute is more libertarian. Uh, the Brookings Institute has been more considered more um, uh, mainstream centrist, but on some of these issues, they do tend to focus more on the the, the corporate education reform agenda. And then there's some some newer groups like Education Sector, um, which which pretty much uh, emulate the other think tanks on a, on a lot of their behaviors. Uh, the Fordham Foundation is a similar one. And I, I think on the, the left, you might point to um, the Economic Policy Institute, or EPI, as a, a union-funded um, group that also has some interest in these issues, but from a very different perspective. So that's at the national level, but um, there's also uh, a lot of this activity is happening in state capitals as well. Um, so if you want, we could talk about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that's actually... Um, at least to me, some of the most interesting uh, pieces of information that you you write about is is this these local networks of think tanks that are you know very politically engaged at at higher levels, but then working through groups like Parent Revolution. Right, and there's reasons for that. I mean, I think um, uh, a lot of this this happens at the national level. Um, because you know they want to affect federal policy, and but but and, and alternatively, there's a lot of opposition at the, the federal level as well, where we've seen a process of what you might call disintermediation, where um, a lot of this organization can happen at the state level, where um, state policymakers are more in need of uh, of evidence and in a sense as, as ammunition for for making policy claims. And there's not as much organized response at the at the state level, where a lot of education policy making takes place um, in state capitals. So there's groups like you might be familiar with the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is a national level group, but they, their focus is on state um, level actors. So ALEC, it's called, and uh, their their main um, uh, efforts are in getting state-level policymakers at the table, literally, with corporate interests um, who who would um, be funding their efforts but also have a particular agenda that they want to sell to those state-level policymakers. And ALEC is interesting because they will actually write legislation um, on different issues such as, say, charter schools, for example, or parent triggers. And state lawmakers can then take those templates and just fill in the name of their states and submit that as, as legislative proposals. So it, in a sense, it, it privatizes or contracts out that, that policymaking effort. And then there's another um, umbrella group called the, the State Policy Network, which is a, 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 a network of um, state-level think tanks, um, and the, all, all the states are represented. And these tend to be more um, market-based or market-oriented um, organizations. Um, and so examples of that would be the Mackinac Center for Public Policy in, in Michigan or the Illinois Policy Institute. 
And these are groups that also uh, promote these types of, these incentivist types of uh, uh, policy proposals. Uh, those would be things like charter schools, vouchers, merit pay, parent trigger, that type of thing. And, um, and what they do is they, um, they try and uh, uh, promote these through uh, interactions with lawmakers, um, but also in terms of pr providing the evidence of their effectiveness or also working with the media to try and, um, you know, create a, a public impression about the need for these types of reforms and, the, and their efficacy. So they've been, I would say, pretty successful. But they do represent kind of a contracting out of policymaking. And so instead of our, our, our public elected policymakers that are, you know, making these, these decisions and these proposals, in a sense, they're um, looking to these, these private, sometimes um, uh, somewhat uh, secretive organizations uh, to get those policy proposals and also evidence of their effectiveness. And that evidence is unquestionable. Um, you know, we've, we've done some analyses of the people that work at these organizations. I've done this with Joe Moline, and uh, we're finding that they have a lot of expertise in terms of media acumen, but not necessarily in terms of research. So their, their trainees in terms of understanding whether or not these are effective or, uh, uh, proposals but they're more salespeople than, 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 than scholars. And that's what these uh, think tanks really you can use. Um, you know, they're, they're much less interested in writing another peer-reviewed journal article and much more interested in having a public policy impact. And they've been, I think, pretty successful at that. It's, I mean, it's an incredible story, and it's... And you, in the article, you you cite the the race to the top, which is you know associated with President Obama's name, um, mm -hmm. as a as an example of of what you call disintermediation. Um, mm -hmm. Could you just describe how this is an or how this is an example of disintermediation and why you uh, find it somewhat problematic? Yeah, well, let me say, I think that Race to the Top was an absolutely brilliant political move um, on, on the part of the Obama administration. They used a, a, a economic crisis and, and the response to that. Um, and instead of mandating um, that states do certain things, they instead highly incentivized them um, in terms of in order to compete for um, some federal funding, substantial federal funding, at a time when states were really cash-starved. Uh, they they required that states make changes if they wanted to be eligible for this competition. So a lot of states did these things, but you know um, the argument could be made that they did them of their own volition. That that um you know they they weren't forced to do it. So uh, in that regard, I think it's a, a, a brilliant political strategy. Um, but it's not necessarily research based. So there's elements of race at the top. Some of the things that that. Uh, the Duncan um, administration at the Department of Education in, in Washington, some of the things that they were requiring that, that um, have more of a political agenda and um, aren't really backed up by research. So we could talk about those, but I think what, what's interesting here is, um, it, is in your question, points more to what are the, the structural implications for this. And this is what we're, we've been describing as disintermediation, where you have kind of a hollowing out of the meso level um, these the structures, democratic structures that were put in place in order to, you know, reflect the, the will of the electorate are being um, bypassed to some extent. So you have a more central um, national player, in this case the Department of Education, but also uh, this was really facilitated by the Gates Foundation. 
and um, and then uh, at, at the same time they're bypassing more of the state and and, and um, the, the state structures and going right to uh, district and school levels and requiring some of these changes be be implemented. Um, but yeah, I think that you could really see the the, um, the fingerprints of the the Gates Foundation on this, but even more so on the the the, com, the Common Core initiative that we've been seeing recently. And that this is examples of where they're just bypassing that that middle level. And let, let's talk a little bit about the the Gates Foundation because this is. Uh, one example of, of venture philanthropy, which is another major player in this policy orchestration that you that you describe. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, what is venture philanthropy, and how is it connected uh, to these think tanks that we just talked about? Yeah, that's a great great question. And venture philanthropy, I think the term is meant to. Um, make some parallels with with the venture capitalism that we're seeing, you know, especially out of Silicon Valley, uh, where you have major players that are looking at um, uh, p- projects with a lot of potential, and they want to invest in those to make changes. Um, so I'm not impugning the, the the motivations of of these people. I think they, you know, often their hearts are in the right place. They want to make changes, um, and they want to make things better, especially for disadvantaged kids. But their approach to doing this and their management style really reflects more of that corporate approach. Um, and it's quite distinct from earlier forms of philanthropy. Uh, if you look at some of the, the previous examples of philanthropy and education policy, um, you know, it's famous uh, names such as Carnegie or the Annenberg Challenge, uh, the Ford Foundation. <coughs> Sorry. And there, what, what you typically see was... Um, these wealthy individuals and families giving out of a sense of social obligation, and they would um, direct their their giving towards certain areas where they thought they could. Um, there was a, a major need, but there wasn't direct then management of that gift to the extent that we're seeing now. Um, it, it was it was often a, a gift, and um, the assumption was that that the nonprofit sector would then be able to, to use those resources for the better. What we're seeing now is uh, um, another term is effective um, philanthropy, where we're seeing philanthropists who are doing this in a very much of an investor style. They're looking for areas where they can have impact, and they want to maintain more, much more direct control over the gift. So they're, um, in a sense, not giving up the steering wheel. And they also are very interested in metrics. They want to see how those um, how, how their, their dollars are having an impact, which is, a, you know, a perfectly reasonable thing, but it's changing the nature of giving as well, where they're seeing this much more in terms of a corporate approach, which makes sense because, you know, a lot of these people come out of the corporate world, you know, the Bill Gates made their money in a particular way. And what they're trying to do is take that model and apply that to the nonprofit sector or to, or to a government sector where things are quite different in a lot of ways. So it's changing the, the nature of the sector to which is the recipient of, of these funds. Yeah, and so this this network that then gets created between these these new this new class of philanthropists and these think tanks that are operating uh, at national levels and global levels, but all the way down into the local grassroots or grass tops levels. Um, what what sort of policies are they then promoting? Let's let's dig into that a little bit. Um, so after all these different actors that are being connected together in this new network 
of policy orchestration. What are these policies that are coming out? Yeah, and they're in a number of areas, and, and certainly the Gates Foundation, um, you know, obviously they've been doing work in, in global health, for example. Um, what, you know, that, that's great, but I'm not an expert on that, and I'm not going to weigh in on that. But um, a number of these these major players here have been focusing on what we're calling incentivist policies, the ones I mentioned previously, where, where they really try to use market-style incentives for individuals and organizations. Um, Groups that are often in the, the nonprofit or the government sector and have been traditionally shielded from those types of incentives. But these philanthropies see those incentives or incentivizing um, these individuals and organizations as the key to getting more effective behaviors and, effect and um, better outcomes from them. Um, so, as I mentioned, these are things such as charter schools, voucher programs, merit pay for teachers. This, this often implies then you're going to have um, metrics available. So, for example, Race to the Top was really promoting um, ways of measuring the value added of, of, of teachers. Um, and I think what's most important here to point out is that the remarkable confluence of interests and agendas of the major players here. So, um, you know, some of the, the big ones would be groups like the, the Gates Foundation, but also the Walton, the Walton Foundation, the Walton Family Foundation. So here you have the wealthiest um, individual and also the wealthiest family um, in, in the U.S. that are promoting this. Um, uh, but also groups like the Broad Foundation, the Robertson Foundation, Fisher Foundation. Um, so, so what's interesting here is that we suddenly have this um, inundation of, of funding, of private funding, and they all tend to promote the same types of of uh, reform policies. There are some, some some variations in there. For example, the Walton Foundation is much more interested in voucher programs um, than is, say, the Gates Foundation, but they both agree about charter schools. And so a lot of them are pouring oh, you know, quite a substantial amount of money into charter schools. And in fact, I think the Walton Foundation has funded um, a, a large proportion of charter schools in the United States. Um, but then they also have groups like the Broad Foundation that are supporting policymakers that that um, promote these types of, of, of uh, policy proposals, and they're actually, in, in many cases, um, training the next generation of leaders to promote these, these types of things. And uh, your, your history uh, in educational privatization, you said earlier, was you were concerned uh, on, with democracy in education and, and how that was changing uh, with the rise of privatization that you saw during your doctoral studies. And, you know, now that you've done all this research, written books and many articles, and you look at these incentivist policies that are coming out um, across many think tanks and philanthropies, like you said, there's a common agenda that's forming. How does that impact democracy, in your opinion? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and let me take a step back and say, you know, after um, you know, 25 years now of these types of policies promoted in schools, there's still not a lot of compelling evidence that they work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, there's still debates, but I think most people would agree that if there's any effect from, say, vouchers or, or charter schools, it's modest at best and, and, uh, and even debatable at that level. Um, so, but what we do agree on, what, what most scholars can agree on, is that we're seeing a change in the policymaking structures themselves, um, and this does have, you know, significant implications for 
um, democracy and, and public policy making. Um, but what we're we're seeing then is is these groups that are you know they're they're thriving. Um, in the case of the Walton Family Foundation, for example, um, based on uh, lower taxes, so they get to keep more of their profits. They're paying their their workers a pretty small amount, and therefore a lot of the, the workers are on public subsidies for for food stamps, for example. So in a sense, they're they're um, they're benefiting from a, a low tax climate and enriching their own their own coffers, and then they're using those those accumulated resources then to directly change public policy making to the extent that you know I think it's okay to consider talking about this as private public policy making. You know that they privatized that public policy making. Those dollars are no longer going through um, elected structures to decide where our needs are and what are the best responses. Instead, they're being directed by private individuals who have their own ideas about what needs to be done. Again, they might be well-intentioned, but they're coming from a, a particular perspective, a corporate perspective, about how things should be done, and they're quite happy to cut out the electorate or the, you know, the will of the people um, to do what they think is best. Of course, they would say that you know um, they're trying to address the needs of the disadvantaged who are who are marginalized by a lot of the, the current structures. And there, there's certainly an argument there. But at the same time, they're really doing their best to bypass uh, uh, elected democratic structures um, that might get in their way. And it, it seems that uh, elected politicians, their relationship to policy making is now much more complicated. It's not as if you're electing someone to go and write policy and laws for your your state or your local municipality or your nation. Uh, right. But rather, you have these elected officials that are basically, I don't know how you would describe it, navigating a, a host of new actors that are, are participating in, in the actual policy creation. Right. No, I think that's absolutely correct. Um, and you know we we point to some examples in the article, but uh, and I've done a paper with Wayne Ah at um, University of Washington where we looked at uh, charter school advocacy in the state of Washington, the home of the Gates Foundation. Uh, and charter schools have, have by and large been been uh, passed by state legislatures, but rejected by voters. Um, school choice in general that that tends to be the pattern. But um, in Washington. Uh, the, the Gates Foundation have been very active in getting charter schools passed by the voters, and uh, they did this through donations to, to political campaign, um, and, and ultimately quite effective uh, in, in, in doing that. So it was it was um, the Gates Foundation's employees, but also people affiliated with 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 Microsoft, and we we kind of look at the network there of, of groups that were supporting. Those funding the, the 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 campaign funds. A similar example would be um, coming out of race to the top uh, in in Illinois. There 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 was a, a definite and an acknowledged strategy of of uh, funding for policymakers who would would advance um, some of the more controversial aspects of race to the top in terms of uh, measuring the effectiveness of teachers, for example. And I think uh, the reform groups there were very deliberate and strategic about um, which people they needed funding or needed to, to be targeted with funding and who might be threatened um, by not having that funding. And so it's not just a matter of providing the, the legislative templates and, and evidence of the effectiveness, but also a political strategy of um, looking at who are the key players that are maybe on the bubble um, that 
could be persuaded by, um, you know, political leverage. Mm. And what of universities in this this new kind of governance structure that we see? How are they implicated in this new network? It's a great question because this isn't just a matter of, uh, you know, an emerging think tank sector or emerging sector of intermediary organizations that are that are advocating for this. The universities have a lot of, you know, cachet and prestige, um, um, you know, even though obviously there's a lot of, of political and ideological influence on campuses as well. Um, they had been seen as a somewhat um, objective uh, and more deliberate um, uh, uh structure through which a lot of these ideas could be evaluated. But um, I think, you know, some of these groups have recognized that, that these could be also um, uh, very uh, useful uh, allies in advocating for different ideas. So we're seeing um, examples of universities being um, the, the beneficiaries of some of these grants um, in order to set up centers, for example, that are meant to facilitate and advocate for particular ideas. And of course, it's gone back um, for a long period of time, but there's, I think, increasing concern that there's not a, um, there's not independence there, that in fact that funding is going for specific projects and centers that are going to f- facilitate and advance an agenda um, rather than actually evaluate the effectiveness of the policies promoted by that agenda. Uh, and so um, what what's happening in a sense is some universities are selling their brand name. They're they're um, allowing these centers to trade in on the the prestige of that brand, um, which um, these funders are quite happy to buy into. You know, have the the name of a prestigious university affiliated with their or associated with their agenda, saying this is proof that this this uh, this intervention works. Mm. So what advice would you have to any university deans out there? <laughs> well, that's, that's a great question, and not being a dean myself, I mean, I think one thing is that um, they need to consider what are the, what are the trade-offs? Uh, I mean, there's a short-term benefit to getting a big grant from some of these organizations, but it's starting to erode the credibility, I think, of some, uh, of, of some institutions, and so they have to be concerned about that trade-off between credibility and cash, uh, which... Um, has longer-term implications that might outlast the tenure of a particular dean. And there also, I think, needs to be attention focused on a firewall. I mean, it's, it donation, universities survive on, on private donations from alumni and from foundations. Those have become more and more critical, especially for public institutions as, as um, tax funding has, has declined. So they're looking to these private sources. But there needs to be structures in place to guarantee that there's um, complete independence in how that funding is used with regard to research and that the funders themselves aren't dictating not just the, the agenda of what researchers are going to be um, pursuing, but also um, certainly the findings. And there's concern that that, that, might, be, um, that might be for sale as well. Mm. So over the last uh, 25 years, you've done various research on educational privatization. What have been some of the biggest surprises that you've uncovered? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think uh, one thing is, is something that came up earlier, just as it's the privatization of public policymaking. Um, you know, in the past, there have been private interests that have been advocating for certain issues, but now we're seeing the actual 
structures and processes of public policymaking themselves being privatized. In, in a sense, public policymakers are contracting out their responsibilities um, to some of these, these private interests. Um, and I think one of the surprises there is just how pervasive and open this is. There doesn't seem to be, in some cases, there doesn't seem to be any attempt to try and shield this. They're, they're very open that they think that um, these types of decisions are better held in the hands of private corporate interests rather than in, in um, the hands of elected officials or elected bodies. Um, so yeah, so, so there's no shame involved in that for some, some people. You know, they, don't, they don't see that as a, as a problem from a democratic perspective. Well, Chris Lubininski, thanks for joining Fresh Ed. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Chris Lubienski is a professor of education policy and the director of the Forum on the Future of Public Education at the University of Illinois. Next week, I'll speak with Tamazin Cave about for-profit education lobbyists in the United States and the United Kingdom. Have you enjoyed the shows on educational privatization? Have questions or opinions you want to share? Join us for a webinar on November 17th at 7 p.m. GMT. Frank Adamson, Chris Lubianski, and Tamazin Cave will join us online to discuss their research in more depth and answer your questions. Space is limited to the first 100 guests, so please RSVP by sending an email to gesig.cies at gmail.com. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. Liked what you heard on the show today? Please be sure to review and subscribe to Fresh Ed on iTunes, Stitcher, or Player FM. If you want to highlight your research on Fresh Ed, please send an email to gesig.cies at gmail.com. Again, that is G-E-S-I-G dot C-I-E-S at gmail.com.